One of my daughters was a pretty good varsity crew member at a at a Division One college. But the thing I learned when watching every one of their meets was that the only way you're going to win the race is that when all eight are rowing in unison, you get one that catches a crab, as it were, where the oar goes that way, or don't row, you don't win. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been a great source of comfort for so many during this pandemic. His commitment to sharing evidence-based science has kept us all informed and up to date. I've known Tony Fauci for 20 years, and I continue to speak with him regularly throughout this crisis. Most recently, I got to sit down with him, virtually, of course, as part of a special summit hosted by Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We talked about everything, including misinformation and testing and even concerns about his family's safety. We've plateaued at an unacceptable level. It's unacceptable, period. I mean, that is totally unacceptable. And for me to say anything different is distorting reality. Today, I wanted to share some of the highlights from that nuanced conversation, including some questions he answered from other distinguished scientists. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Lately, we haven't heard as much from Dr. Tony Fauci during White House briefings, but he's still finding plenty of opportunities to engage with the public. As the head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, he continues to work exhausting hours, track cases, search for solutions, and distribute new information. Given how much he's juggling, it's hard to imagine the 79-year-old Fauci is getting any sleep. I think one of the good things about having done my internship and residency during a period of time when we were on every other night and every other weekend before those rules were changed, I think this is my internship on steroids here. (laughs) So I'm doing fine. uh, uh, So I I can't complain. And I should point out, you were seeing patients uh, earlier today. You're still staying clinically active. I am as well. It is one of the great joys of continuing to be able to practice medicine. You, you have told me and you've told others that you have no intention of not staying in this job as, as tough as it's been, frankly, lately. So let me ask the question a little bit differently uh, because you and I also share, we both have wives and three daughters. Um, how's Christine doing with all this? Has she, uh, has she worried about you? Does she suggested that maybe you pull back at all? Well, she doesn't suggest they pull back. She's fine. The girls are fine. They're geographically distributed. They're young women now and have their own jobs and their own professions. They're in three separate cities. So I I miss seeing them. The only stress, I think more on the children, uh, Chris is a, is a rock. She's my anchor is the, the the unseemly things that crises bring out in the world. You know, it brings out the best of people and the worst of people and, you know, getting death threats for me and my family and harassing my daughters to the point where I have to get security is just, I mean, it's amazing. I I wouldn't have imagined in my wildest dreams that people who object to things that are pure public health principles are so set against it and don't like what you and I say, uh, namely in the word of science, that they actually threaten you. I mean, that to me is just strange. So other than that, which they're handling 
well. I wish that they did not have to go through that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're going through that and your daughters and Christine, I, I, I know it can't be easy, but let, let, let's, let's get to some questions right away and we'll keep coming back to this topic. Uh, 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 Dr. Arnie Epstein has a question. Dr. Fauci, the title of this series is When Public Health Means Business. And thus far, it seems like we haven't meant business at all. The United States has 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's COVID cases and deaths. For a country that is the most affluent and influential, that is a catastrophe. My question is, knowing what you now know, what would you do differently before the next pandemic or during it? Well, I I think there's two parts of that question, sir. One is, you know, how how we might explain how this happened and what I would do different, and then what you would do different for the next pandemic. I think preparedness, we put together a pandemic preparedness plan as we were trying to respond to the threat of the pre-pandemic bird flu back in 2005. And again, it was a plan that was a reasonable plan. And in fact, when it was evaluated independently by Johns Hopkins, it stated that it was our preparedness for a pandemic was essentially number one in the world. But what happened when the rubber hit the road on this and we did get hit we had the kind of response that was not as well suited to what the dynamics of this outbreak is. When you looked at our curve, it's telling. And that's the thing that bothers me. We went way up and when we came down, we came down to a plateau of 20,000 cases per day. That is not a good baseline. We went from 20,000 a day to 30, 40, 50, 60, and we even peaked at 70,000 new infections. The deaths had gone down nicely. That was good. Now they're starting to go up because of the cases that went up. So we had a disparate response. We had some went up and some went down. And there are parts of the country you could look at that did very well. But totally, as a nation, we are in that situation where we've got to get that control way down to a low baseline. So, so, Dr. Fauci, let me just summarizing. We were ill-prepared to deal with this pandemic in the first place, sounds like. And then you call the response sort of a disparate response, but it sounds like it was a failed response. We never really fully implemented a therapy. I mean, in medicine, if you give a half a therapy, you wouldn't call it you know, a disparate therapy. You would say you gave inadequate therapy to, to actually treat the problem. Did, did we let the American people down with this response? You know, Sanjay, you know <laughs> that if I make a statement that we let the American people down, it would be distracting because that would be the soundbite. And I wouldn't want to get the message that I'm trying to get across where I think we can handle this if we have some fundamental principles that I hope, and I know you'll let me, get the, uh, the, the opportunity to articulate because we can do much better and we can do much better without locking down. And I think the, that, that strange binary uh, uh, approach that either you lock down or you let it all fly. There's some place in the middle when we can open the economy and still avoid these kind of surges that we're seeing. And I hope we get a chance to discuss that. Well, maybe we can get right to that now, sir. You, you made a list the other day, and I'll just uh, rattle them off for the audience. Uh, if, if we wore masks, if we kept physical distance, 
if we uh, uh, shut down bars or at least indoor cl closely crowded situations, large gatherings, and washed hands often. And outdoors much better than indoors. Always. That's if, the point. If we did those five things, that's not shutting down, but right. if we did those five things, what would the country look like in three or four weeks? You know, I, it may take a little bit longer than three or four weeks. I'd say what it would look like in a month and a month and a half. I think it would be the kind of turnaround that when, you know, the, the, the southern states that got hit really badly, you know, what, Southern California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. What Arizona did is that they finally did say, wait a minute, we're in trouble. We're going to institute those fundamental principles. And they came right down in a nice curve, which is really good. So here's the point that I want to make is that, and, and it seems simple, is that one of the things working against it, the good news about COVID-19 is that about 40% of the population has no symptoms when they get infected. That's good. I mean, you get infected, you get no symptoms. The bad news for messaging is that 40% of the population get no symptoms. Because if you want to get a unified response with this most unusual virus, Sanjay, I don't, I don't think anything has come close to that in my 40 years of experience. You get 40% of the people have no symptoms. Then you get some people that get minor symptoms, some that get serious enough that they're in bed for several weeks. So as long as you have any member of society, any demographic group who's not seriously trying to get to the end game of suppressing this, it will continue to smolder and smolder and smolder. And that will be the reason why in a non-unified way, we've plateaued at an unacceptable level. So I, we, we will keep this, this line of conversation going because I think it does then raise the question, if we can't get to that point where people, either because of trust or because of diligence with these basic public health measures, if it just isn't happening, do we need to do something that's more aggressive in this country? And before you answer, think about that. This, this feeds into our next question from Dr. Sarah Fortune. So let's play that as well. Over the past several months, I've spent a great deal of time talking to the community, to the lay press about um, the COVID pandemic and uh, advances in SARS-CoV-2 research. And I know you have done the same times 10. I have been disheartened by threads of mistrust um, in the public um, towards uh, science. Uh, I have received questions about um, uh, the legitimacy of scientific studies and the potential political motivations of the scientists conducting those studies. Um, and uh, I am in sort of despair about the state of relations between the scientific community and the public. And I was wondering if there are lessons that you have learned about um, building trust between the scientific community and the public um, that could help us move forward now? You know, that's a very good question, uh, Sanjay, and a very good comment. Uh, yes, there is a degree of anti-science feeling in this country. Um, and I think it is not just related to science, it's almost related to authority and a mistrust in authority that spills over because in some respects, 
scientists because they're trying to present data may be looked at, looked upon as being authoritative figure. And the pushing back on authority is pushing back on government is the same as pushing back on science. Unfortunately, that's not what scientists are. And I think we need to be more transparent and reaching out to people and engaging society and understanding why science and evidence-based policy is so important. But the, the, the person who just made that comment is absolutely correct. That is really a very difficult thing to do. And I know when I say that if we follow these five or six principles, we can open up. We, we don't have to stay shut. We can push and open up if we do this. There are some people that just don't believe me or don't pay attention to that. And that's unfortunate because that is the way out of this. We can continue to go towards normality without doing the drastic things of shutting down if we follow some fundamental principles. Coming back to this point that we're, we keep hitting on, the pace of science and how we know something is conclusive. Um, maybe because I'm a surgeon, I get impatient, but take something like this issue. Shouldn't we know this by now? Whether this is an aerosolized, potentially aerosolized virus versus just something that spreads via droplets? I mean, it seems like you could, we could, you know, given that we're in the middle of the worst public health crisis and that's such a salient central point, why don't we already know the answer? You know, we, it's, it's not an easy answer to get because you can talk about uh, droplets that hang around. The question is, you've got to do a study to show that the virus actually transmits that way. And when you do it, you got to do it in a BSL-3 facility of which there are limited amounts. So right now, as we're speaking, even before I got on, we're on the phone with all the different groups of saying, here's an important question. We better answer it and we better answer it quickly. However, it's not going to change much. What it tells me that if this is true, that aerosol plays a much greater role than we think, then for goodness sakes, the five or six things that I mentioned in the beginning of this discussion are in spades what you've got to do. You've got to wear a mask. You've got to avoid crowds. Outdoor, better than indoor, all the same stuff. A question about testing that comes up quite a bit. And I can tell you, again, as I mentioned, I got three girls who are going back to school. Uh, and there's lots of questions about testing at their school. Should it happen? Uh, we talked to you and I uh, a few months ago about needed breakthroughs in testing. Leaving aside the numbers for a second of tests that we need, what, what does a breakthrough in testing look like? Uh, you're testing for the virus. Can you get a breakthrough that allows widespread testing that is rapid, that is accurate, that is actionable in some way? And, and if so, why aren't we there yet? Yeah, you know, that's, you just described it perfectly, uh, Sanjay. That's exactly what we need. And that's exactly what, you know, I have been, pushing for for some time yeah. right now, as you know, I've spoken to you about this both publicly and privately. We don't have it yet. Uh, I hope now with the investment that has been made about really getting point of care that have the characteristics you're talking about in the perfect world, which I think we can get there. We're a rich country. We've done amazing things to get a test that is very specific because right now you have tests that you want to determine if an individual is infected for contact tracing. But it would still be good from a surveillance standpoint 
to get your arms around what the totality of infection is. Right now, what we're trying to do to decompress the load, and we were talking about this just today on a phone call, and yesterday at the, at the task force meeting, is to get surveillance testing done in a way that you don't absolutely need to crowd out the testing that you need to know tomorrow whether someone's infected. When you're doing surveillance, like you need to know in the general population, you can give it to universities, get them get their tests activated and decompress the demand when you get a surge of infections where you need to do contact tracing. Right. If we do that, I think we can get those days down. But what we ultimately need is what you just proposed. Let me, we have a few minutes remaining. Let me get to another question here. This is uh, from Professor Eric Rubin. Since you became director of the NIAID, you've seen a large number of epidemics, including influenza, Ebola, Zika, HIV, and now you're on your third coronavirus outbreak. Do you think that there are lessons we can take away from this that we can apply to the next epidemic? Yeah. Well, Eric, there are, there are a couple of lessons. I mean, one is my answer to Sanjay's question a little while ago about you know preparation for this, and it turned out to be an historic outbreak. Let's keep the corporate memory so that three or four years from now, when we're starting to worry about other things and we ask for resources for pandemic preparedness, that the corporate memory disappears and we say, well, you know, we'll worry about that later. We got to worry about the problem we have now. We will have another pandemic for absolutely certain. There's no doubt about that. The other lesson learned that is something that I've been talking about with influenza is to do prototype pathogens and say, you know, this is the third coronavirus pandemic that we've had. This is historically the worst pandemic we've had in 102 years. So instead of putting coronaviruses on the back burner, why don't we try, I say, well, I'm asking a question, I'm telling you, we're definitely going to do it, is to develop a universal coronavirus vaccine that has the specificity against all the coronaviruses. So we don't have to anticipate the next time this happens. That's a lesson that we've learned with influenza, which is why we're developing a universal influenza vaccine. And we're gonna do the same thing with coronaviruses. Shame on us if we're not prepared for the next coronavirus pandemic outbreak. Uh, Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for your, your time. Uh, thank you for your service to the country and to the world at this point. I mean that sincerely. I really cherish these conversations as uh, does the, the large community. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Sanjay. As always, it's great to be with you. I look forward to even more interviews coming up. I continue to be grateful for Dr. Fauci's measured, fact-focused leadership during this time. And also to all the scientists out there who are working day and night to search for therapies and vaccines against COVID-19. Thank you from all of us. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.